Thanks for joining us today at Springwell Church, where we want to draw spiritually thirsty people to Jesus by loving God, loving each other, and loving the world. We hope that today's message builds you up, gives you a little insight, and helps you find a brand new perspective. You can find us in Taylor, South Carolina, and online at springwell.org. That's springwell.org. Now let's jump into the message. I just had the thought before I started talking. Did I flip my microphone on? And then I decided to risk it. How are y'all doing? Y'all good? Um, this morning we're going to start a, a new series that we're calling Escape Room. How many of you have ever been to an escape room? Anybody? Uh, full disclosure, I hate them. Um, even though I titled this series, I, I hate an escape room, mainly because I'm impatient and I don't understand why it's fun to pretend to get locked into a room. And, and, and I think the realistic side of my brain also says, this is ridiculous. They have the keys. But an escape room is something that it kind of has some, some puzzles that you kind of walk through a room or multiple rooms and you have a timer. Usually you're with a team and you have a timer of how long it's going to take you to get out. So you have 60 minutes to get out of these, this room using these puzzles and these different keys. And obviously if you don't make it, they come and let you out. But if you do make it, you usually take a picture with a sign that says, I made it. But that's what an escape room is. But I think there's some things in our lives that sometimes we spend time trying to escape. As a matter of fact, I think there's some things in our lives that even if you're um, 60, 80, 85 years old in the room or watching online this morning, there's some things that you've been trying to escape your entire life. And you feel like you haven't been able to quite crack the code or quite figure out the puzzle. I want to take the next few weeks and I want us to talk about escaping some of these things that often take us down and, and, and take us out. And I want to start that off by um, talking about escaping temptation this morning. Um, as many of you know, I have a six-year-old boy. Uh, he's just still young enough that I can reward him with toys from Dollar Tree, okay? I don't know what age that ends. What age does a Dollar Tree toy end up not being a good reward? I, I think we're probably about there, seven. I think, I think we're getting close, unfortunately. Um, but several months ago, he did something good at school or somewhere. I don't even remember what it was. But I took, him, I took him to Dollar Tree, and I let him walk down the toy aisle. And literally, there's half an aisle of toys. There's like eight things that he would ever really want, but it takes him 30 minutes to make a choice, right? So finally, what I'm rewarding him for, eventually, I have to apologize for because I'm telling him, we've got to get out of here. You know, it's like five minutes has gone by, and there, you don't have that many toys to look at. Just pick. It's a dollar. So finally, 30 minutes later, um, I've already had to apologize to him a couple of times for yelling at him. But anyway, he, he picks this little Superman figure. And it's not just a figure, but it's a keychain. And the, one of the things that he really wrestled with about this Superman was that it had a keychain on it, and he didn't want the keychain part. And so part of that time I spent trying to talk to him and try to tell him, listen, buddy, I can take the keychain part off. Like, I have some pliers. I have a multi-tool in my truck. As soon as we get in the truck, I can take the keychain part off. We'll be good. So finally, we make it out of the store, make it into my truck. And, of course, the first thing he wants to do before we go anywhere is to remove the keychain part of Superman. And so as he hands me Superman, because he had to open it, I begin to get the pliers out of my multi-tool and start to work on this thing. Meanwhile, he gets really nervous. Like, he starts freaking out. Daddy, Daddy, don't break it. Daddy, don't break it. I really love that Superman. Don't, 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 don't break it. And, of course, I'm thinking, 
dude, it's a dollar. If I break it, we are literally sitting in front of the store. I can go, I can buy you 20 more if you want them. You know, sometimes I think, I don't think we realize the things that the Father has available to us, the things that God really wants to give us. And so what we do is we get really nervous that we're not going to have some things that we think we want or some things that we think we need. And so we begin to try to get them in our own way, don't we? I think sometimes we forget, those of us that call Jesus the Savior of our lives, sometimes we forget that when we're a child of God, everything we want, everything we need, the deepest desires of our heart are available to us, but we tend to get nervous and we jump the gun and try to get things by ourselves. And so we try. We want peace. And so we're constantly trying to, to find it. Some of you Christianity is just another religion in your playbook because you've been looking for peace and you've been trying all different kind of stuff. For some of you, you, you want more money and so you sacrifice your morals or maybe you do some things, maybe you make some deals, maybe, maybe you do some things, maybe, maybe you don't give and so you're sacrificing some things because you want some things that really God wants to, to take care of you. Some of you, you want intimacy. And so you go, you go looking for it either in late night surfing the internet or in talking to a coworker. Meanwhile, God has something that he can provide for you. You were created for a relationship with him. Some of you, you want to feel valuable, and so you talk about others. You run others in the ground, and, and, and you gossip. Meanwhile, the God that we serve and the God that we claim to believe in is saying, I have all of this for you. You don't have to be nervous. You don't have to be worried that you're not going to get it because I have it for you. You're my child. I withhold nothing good from you if you'll try to get it in a way that I want to give it to you. Today, I want to talk for a few minutes with the title, Adam's Apple. Adam's Apple. Just to kind of set up the passage this morning, we're going to be in a couple of different places. It's going to be in Genesis 3, but we're also going to be in Matthew chapter 4. But just to kind of set up Genesis 3, Genesis 3 is right after what? Not a trick question. Genesis 2, which is right after Genesis 1. Y'all are doing good. So it's only literally three chapters into the Bible. So Genesis 3, just to kind of recap what's happened in Genesis 2 and in Genesis 1. God has, has spoken the world into existence. And, and yes, that was literal. He literally spoke and things became. He spoke the world into existence. He created man. He created everything you see. He created the birds. He created the trees. Then he created man. And, and the Bible says that in Genesis 2-7 that God did something unique with man, that he breathed the bre- his own breath into man. And the Bible says that man became a living being. Now, some of you this morning that walked in here and doubted, and you had some doubt in your mind if God cared or if he had left you or if he had ever done anything for you, that passage right there tells you something, that literally God has breathed his breath into you, and that is the only reason you are alive today. If nothing else, if you can't think of anything else of of a reason why you know God loves you, one of the reasons is because God breathed his breath into you, and it has still continued to go on and on and on. That's the reason you're here today. And so Genesis 2-7, he breathes his breath into man. Man becomes a living being, and then he created woman. Why did Adam name say it was a woman? Because he looked at her and said, whoa, man. 
They don't get better from here. All right. And so he created, he created a woman, and everything was, everything was perfect. And then temptation makes its way into the world. Temptation can be defined simply as a way of, to accomplish a good thing in a bad way. A lot of the, the temptations that you face, the temptations either to question yourself, to question God, the temptations you face to do something that you know is outside of your moral compass or is outside of, of what God would have for you, many of those temptations you face, you're trying to accomplish a good thing. You're trying to meet a God-given need. It's just in a, in a bad way. There's some good desires that God's placed in us that we go outside of what the parameters God has for us seeking to fulfill those desires. A good desire met in a wrong way will leave you empty. A couple of weeks ago, I used the illustration that when I eat uh, Doritos and drink Diet Mountain Dew for lunch, it may fill me up for a second, but at the end, it leaves me empty. I'm looking for another meal in two hours, right? Trying to fulfill a godly desire in a bad way or in a wrong way will leave you empty. And what I've noticed is that oftentimes temptation comes like it does for Eve in this story. It doesn't come when everything is going bad. Oftentimes, the strongest temptations we'll face to do things we know we shouldn't do come when everything in our life seems to be going okay. Because I think it's in those moments where we kind of take a step back. Maybe we withdraw a little bit from God. Maybe when things were, were going tough or when the job was in doubt or when our kids were going astray or, 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 or when we were unhappy or we were depressed. Maybe we took some steps to kind of lean into God. But when things are going good, we kind of back away. We kind of back away from church. We back away from, from, from him. And that is where the enemy begins to, to get in. When things are going good, that's the way it happens for Adam and Eve in this story. So let's dive in to the very first temptation man ever faced in Genesis 3. Y'all ready? Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. It says, The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? I want you to know this morning we have a real enemy. We have a real enemy this serpent is representative of Satan himself. We have a real enemy. And for some of you, you've been in church a really long time, but you've never had an accurate view of who Satan really is. Because what happens is for a lot of us, we have actually, we kind of get freaked out by this because most churches and a lot of people fall on one of two sides when it comes to the enemy that we face. They either give Satan as much credit as God and they talk more about him than they do about Jesus, or they just ignore him. Like Satan doesn't even exist. But I want you to know this morning that you have a real enemy. This serpent is the enemy. This Satan is the enemy. You have a real enemy, but there's good news. You have a real savior. You have a real, real wickedness in this world, but there's good news. There's also a real God and real love. And so we can't see either one of those sides and not look at the other. You can't just make out like Satan doesn't exist, but you also can't give him too much credit. Because he is a defeated foe. And so he comes to, to Eve in this story. And as a matter of fact, this story right here is why Satan has some authority in the earth. It's this story right here that evil enters the earth. Satan it was an angel that was kicked out of heaven. He was kicked out of heaven because he was prideful. But now Satan, while he is, is a powerful being, he, he can't, he's not God, so he can't be everywhere at one time. 
So he has what the Bible calls demons, which were also kicked out of heaven with him, according to Revelation, and they kind of do his bidding. They, they, they were also angels that fell at the same time as, as Satan. Angels are created as angels. And so demons were always demons. As soon as they get kicked out of heaven. And so Satan can't be everywhere at once. So he has the demons to help him. But he also, he's not all powerful like God. He's not all knowing like God. But he is tricky. He is real. He's, he, he's not someone to, 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 to be messed with. Throughout scripture, Satan is referred to as a serpent in this story. He's referred to as a dragon. He's referred to be like a lion. He's called their adversary. He's called the destroyer, the slander, the father of lies. And so obviously this dude isn't someone you want to hang around with and talk to and have a little chat, right? Like Eve is going to do. He's not someone that you want to FaceTime, right? He's not someone that you would save in your contacts. But Eve responds to the serpent. Verse 2, Eve responds and says, Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. So here's Eve. Everything's perfect. They're Adam and Eve. They're just sitting out there. They're just hanging out there. They're naked as jaybirds. Everything is perfect. They don't know any better. Everything's great. And then Eve starts entertaining this snake. And the snake says, did he really say that? Eve has a choice to make. Because even though Satan's going to tempt her, she still has a choice to make. We have a choice to make. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a beautiful garden? Maybe think of, 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 of like, a, like a winery or something, a beautiful garden with bountiful fruit everywhere you can look, as far as your eye can see. Beautiful trees everywhere, but it's this tree in the center of the garden is the only one you're told not to eat from. Some of you feel that tension sometimes, aren't you? If you, if you really want me to do something, tell me I can't do it, right? I know I have all these other options, but there's something about that one. But Eve has the choice, so it begs the question, right? Well, why did God put the tree there in the first place? Good question, right? I mean, if God knew which I believe that he's sovereign, he knows. I don't know how he knows. I don't know how all that works with his prayers and my choices, but I believe he's sovereign. And so if he knew that Eve was going to take the fruit, which, he, which she eventually does, and then she gives some to her husband, if he knew that, why did he put the tree there? Well, if I told you you have to love me and I gave you no choice, would you really be loving me? No, because love requires a choice. And why did God create man? He, create, he, create, he created man to reveal his glory and to have companionship with. And so if God created man for those purposes but never gave them a choice to choose anything else, we would have been puppets, and that would not have been, why the, God, that would not have been the humans that God wanted to create. And so Eve had, Eve had a choice, and she had, to, she had to have a choice for love to really exist. And on top of that, Eve is even misquoting God here. What God really said is in Genesis 2, and this is verse 16, it says, and the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, 
you will certainly die. Do you remember what Eve said? She said, we can't eat from it. We can't even touch that booger or we'll die, right? Did God say that? No, he said, you can't eat from it. She added the you can't touch it. She is completely misquoting God. Just one chapter later, my question to you is, are you misquoting God? In any area of your life. Ladies, has has God told you that you were valuable? That you were like a queen? That you were that you were important. But yet you've believed the lie for so long that nobody would miss you if you were gone. Are you misquoting God? Because to doubt your value, ladies and men, to doubt your value is misquoting God because God has said that you are valuable. Are you misquoting God because you're allowing yourself to believe what other people are saying? That, yeah, she's, she's never going to get there. She's not a good mom. She's not a good wife. He's never going to make that kind of money. He's never going to find a wife. He's not, he's not worth it because of his past. Are you misquoting God? Are you misquoting God? Also, are, are you misquoting God because you're beginning to, to give and you're trying to straddle a line of what's okay and what's not, and so now you're kind of beginning to give just a little bit and you're starting to misquote God because you're trying to kind of manipulate some things so that you can feel better about doing what you want to do? Are you misquoting God? Eve, she says, he said, we can't eat it. We can't even touch the sucker. No, he never said that. Are you misquoting God because you are saying that he is saying some things he never said? Are Are you misquoting God? The snake responds to Eve with a bold faced lie. This is what he says You won't die. Don't you know that's the way he said it too? You won't die. Which, maybe I shouldn't say that because sometimes the voice of Satan sounds very, very legitimate. But he says, you won't die. The serpent replied, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you will be like God knowing both good and evil. So Satan is telling a lie, but he's also playing on an area that on the surface seems good, right? Because the Bible says all men, Whether you believe in Jesus or you don't believe Jesus, we were all created in the image of God. And as believers, one of the things we're created to do is we're created to literally become more like God as we grow, right? That's one of the things we're supposed to do. As we grow closer to Jesus, as we begin to appreciate his love more and love him more, we become more like God. And so what Satan is doing is he's taking something that's on the surface is good, but he's perverting it in a way that isn't good. He's taking a half-truth, and he's tempting Eve with it. And on top of that, God, Satan is questioning the character of God. Because he's saying, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. And so what Satan is saying is he's saying, God doesn't want your best. He's questioning the the character of God. And by the way, one of Satan's greatest lies to this day is to get you to question the character of God. To get you to question, is he there? Does he care? 
is he real? Does it matter? Does it make any difference? He still uses this trick. So that seals the deal. Look at verse 6. It says, the woman, she was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would, it would give her. It looked good. Sin sometimes looks good. That's why it's tempting. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. It says Eve took it because she wanted the wisdom it gave her. I wonder, and I've never, I've never read this, I've never had this, had this thought, and I'll explain it some later before you think it's heresy. But I just, I just wonder, it could just imagine if maybe, maybe Eve allowed some doubts about who she was to creep into her mind here. Maybe everything was good until the tempter came in. Maybe her and Adam, they were sitting around. They were eating apples. They were eating grapes. They were hanging out. They were playing in the field. But then, say, then this tempter comes up, and I wonder if Eve didn't start to kind of begin to question who she was. Because it says she wanted the wisdom it gave her. How did she, how did she know she wasn't that wise? I wonder if maybe she began to, to have some doubts about, am I good enough? Am I ever going to get that? Am I ever going to be able to get that? Am I ever going to be able to get to there? Am I ever going to be, be, be able to know that? I wonder if she questioned, am I smart enough? Because everything was perfect. What made her want the knowledge that Satan began to tempt her with? I, I have to think, she began to think some things about herself that maybe weren't, weren't true. Our, our toughest temptations will often come from the areas of our greatest insecurities. I said this a couple of weeks ago. Some of our greatest temptations will come from those areas that we're the most insecure about. And I'm not saying that, that Eve was insecure, everything, everything was perfect, but what I am saying is that she obviously saw something that looked good on the surface to her, and so she went for it. The results of sin are usually something we don't expect, and it starts out small. I'm just going to take one bite. I'm just going to take one, one bite of the apple because, by the way, we don't know if it was an apple or some other kind of fruit, but I'm just going to take, I'm going to take one, one bite and just see what it's like. It, that's usually the way it starts. It, it usually starts small, but a seed of compromise will lead to a crop of destruction before we know it. That's what, that's what happened here. This story not only allows sin to enter the world, but it also creates, causes the fall of the world. That's why everything seems off balance now. That's why sometimes when you walk around, it just seem, seems like things aren't right and you can't quite put your finger on it. People ask about natural disasters. Why do they happen? Well, this is it. This, this allowed stuff like that to happen because everything was supposed to be balanced out. And the second that sin entered the world, everything was thrown off balance. And so that's why as, as a believer and as a Christian here this morning, you're never gonna quite feel completely fulfilled because you're not, you're, this isn't your home. That's why, that's why things happen that we can't explain. It's because the entire world is off, 
is off balance because of this story. And it seems so small at the time. Seemed like just one little bite of an apple. But there's hope. Some 4,000 years later, a man would show up on the scene that the Bible refers to a lot of times as the second Adam. You ever heard that term? The second Adam. And the reason why it says that is because Jesus came and rewrote history from what happened here with Adam and Eve. Jesus was kind of the the refresh on the browser of history. And so he comes some 4,000 years later, and he gives us a picture in Matthew 4 of what it looks like to not go along with the temptation, but to fight against the temptation. And this is what it says, starting in Matthew 4, verse 1. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days, and, and there's so, let me just pause, there's so much stuff in here. We could literally do a series on these few verses, so I'm going to have to skim over some stuff. You probably have some questions. It's okay. You can ask me later, but I, but I got to go, okay? Because I would love to stop every few words and explain it, but we can't do that right now. But anyway, all right. Hey, for, for 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no. The scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. How do we fight temptation? It starts when you know your enemy. Know your enemy. So here's Jesus, right? Fully God, fully man. He's been fasting for 40 days. 40 days. It's hard for me to sometimes go 40 minutes. He's been fasting for for 40 days. And then that's when Satan shows up and offers him some food. You have to know your enemy. Satan has a strategy. He's not as powerful as God. He's not as big as God. He's not as all-knowing. But he is smart enough that he has a strategy. And that is exactly what happens here is that Jesus is hungry. It's 40 days. Yes, he's a man. Yes, his stomach's growling. It's been 40 days. He's like, I need a steak. I need some chicken wings. And then Satan shows up and offers him something he knows he can't have. Doesn't he do that with us too? Doesn't he have a strategy with us? Like, aren't the, aren't the kids, aren't the grandkids even crazier when you're really tired? Right, Shannon? It's like they have a switch. Oh, mommy's tired. Turbo annoying mode. You know what I mean? Have you ever noticed that when your car breaks, so did your washer? So did your refrigerator. All of a sudden, the the kids need money for the field trip and the car's out of gas. Have you ever noticed when you hear people talking about you, when one person talks about you, it's, it's never somebody that you don't really not care if they talk about you. It's really somebody that their opinion actually does matter to you, even though you don't want it to. In order to fight the temptation to, to fight back or to gossip back or, or to get mad or to give up and, or to take the kids out or outside, I mean. In order to, to, to fight that, that, that temptation, you have to know your enemy. There's a strategy. It's going to happen. 
we also have to know the truth. Know the truth. So how does Jesus combat this lie of Satan? With the truth. And I think it's really interesting, and there's so much in this, between the story that we just talked about in Genesis and this story, there's so many parallels and and conflicts. But one of the things I think is really, really interesting is that Eve misquoted God. Jesus, remember what God said. And his temptation is going to turn out a whole lot different than Eve's. And one of the big reasons for that is because he quoted God correctly. But we have to know the truth. And, and we, can't, we can't wait until we need it, until, the, until something pops up in our life where we want to give up or we want to think bad thoughts or we have a temptation to do something wrong. We can't wait for them to, 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 to then go to the Bible and start reading. All right, hold on, hold on, Satan. I got a, I got a passage here somewhere. I just got to find one. No, we, we, have, to, we have to come preloaded. We have, to know, we have to know the truth. You got to have some stuff in your head that immediately you can recall when you need it on the spot. We were, my wife and I went to the grocery store Friday. I had to buy Diet Mountain Dew. She said, Jonathan, we have Diet Mountain Dew at home. I'm like, baby, I know, but we won't forever. I had to be ready when the Diet Mountain Dew stopped flowing, right? I had to be ready. You got to be ready. You got to know you got to know the truth. And I'm not saying you have to be perfect because some of you are, are new believers or you're, you're new Christians. I'm, I'm not saying you've got to be able to, to quote the entire Bible or an entire chapter. I'm talking about just, just, some, just some key words, some, some key truths. There's a card in your chair that says escape room. And if you're watching online, we'll put this on social media later. But there's a card in your chair and there's some really short verses there for you to either memorize or to keep with you or something so that, that, that when that thing comes... You can, you can have something to go to. You can have something to fight back with. You have to, you have to know the truth. So Satan tries again. Verse 5 says, Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the Scriptures say he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so that you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, The Scriptures also say, You must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. I'll give it all to you, he said, if you will kneel down and worship me. We also have to know Satan's territory. So think about this. John 1.1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. That everything was created through Jesus. Here's Satan. He takes him on this high over overhanging this high mountain, he says, look at all this, Jesus. All of this can be yours. He's tempting the creator with creation. Do you catch that? He's trying to give something, Satan, or trying to give Jesus something that's not his in the first place, but something Jesus already has and can make another at at, at, at a word. You have to know his territory. Satan is trying to give Jesus something that he has no ability to give him. I can tell you, I'll give you a million dollars, but it ain't in my bank account. So I can't deliver on it, can I? So Satan is is trying to give Jesus something that's not his to give, but he's also trying to give Jesus something he already has. He does that with you. He promises you peace. He promises you relief. He promises you joy. He promises you an escape. He promises you meaning. He promises you intimacy. Meanwhile, all of those things are available. 
from your creator. If, you're a, if you have a relationship with Jesus today, all of those things are available if you'll lean into, into Jesus enough. But instead we sacrifice what we know is right because of something that we can see with our own eyes right at this moment. Jesus has enough, and in verse 10, he says, get out of here. Look at the person beside you and say, get out of here. No, seriously, do it. Say, get out of here. Y'all still aren't playing along. Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil went away, and angels came and took care of Jesus. Number four, know that there's an end. No spiritual battle, no temptation will last forever. You are God's precious child. And in the end, you win because he wins. I love, the reason I wanted you to repeat that is because sometimes that's what you have to say in the face of temptation and the battles that you face is you have to literally say, Satan, you got to get out of here. You have this power as well. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have that same power because Jesus can say, get out of here. And he says, I'm going to give that power to you because Satan is scared of the Jesus inside of you. Jesus gets the final word. Adam and Eve in the garden may have reversed everything that was perfect, but Jesus gets the final word. And when he says, get out of here, Satan, everything will be done. At the end, if you read the end of the Bible, at the end, he wins. It's all over. Satan is defeated. He is a defeated foe. And one of the reasons why he is so after you is because he knows his time is limited. But if you have a relationship with Jesus, it will cause you to be victorious now and in the future because at the name of Jesus, they've got to get out of here. There is an end, and Jesus will always come to the rescue of his children. Always. I don't care how many times you fall short. I don't care what you've said, what you've thought. I talked with someone this week, and I told him, I said, it's, it's okay to yell at God. It's okay. It's okay to doubt God. It's okay. He can handle it. He's a big boy. Some of you think you're unforgivable because of, you've done some of that stuff. He can handle it. He doesn't leave you. He's always there. And in the end, you win because he wins. And he always provides a way out of temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Which is where a lot, go, go back one, one, line, one line. But for a lot of people, when they hear, when they kick around the phrase, God won't give you more than you can handle, that's where they get it from. But that's not what it says. He says he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Next verse says, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. God always provides a way out of temptation. It's in the truth. It's in him giving you strength, in him giving you power. You just have to look for it, and he always has. So let's go back to Genesis 3, and I want you to look how that entire story wraps up. This is what it says in Genesis 3.21. It says, and the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. 
So all that's happened. They've eaten from the tree they were supposed to not eat from. Sin enters the world. Shame enters the world. All of that's happened. But then way back in Genesis 3, as Pastor Scott mentioned a few weeks ago, the grace of God begins at the beginning of the Bible. Way back at Genesis 3, God knew, or God made atonement, God did God sacrifice something so that Adam and Eve could be forgiven. And a lot of scholars think that the animal that was, that was sacrificed that day was a lamb. And in the New Testament, some 4,000 years later, Jesus at the cross, dying, breathing his last breath, what was he referred to as the Lamb of God? So I've got some good news for you. Everything is off balance. Temptation will still come. But you will win. You have a way to be forgiven. You have a way to overcome. The seeds of Satan will lead to death. And this is why it matters to God. Because the grace of Jesus will lead to a full crop. With every head bowed and every eye closed. Some of you are going to cheat, and I know, and it's fine. With every head bowed and every eye closed, there's people in this room, and you are so far from God. You're so far from God, and you've always known, and it's always bugged you a little, but right now it's really bothering you. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, and you're in this room, and you want to accept Him as Savior, not so that you can be perfect, but so that you can know that you win in the end. Just say this prayer in your heart. Say, God, I'm tired of trying to do it by myself. I got nothing left. But I believe Jesus defeated not just temptation, but defeated death when he rose from the dead. So I got to ask you, to come into my life to change it. Jesus, you're the Lord of my life. Whatever that means, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to find out. Thank you for saving me in Jesus' name. For everybody else, whatever that temptation is, whatever that thing is that continues to, to pull at you, whatever that thing is that you've fallen captive to in the past and you probably will be tempted by tomorrow with it again. I just want to pray for you. I want to pray that you wouldn't just defeat that temptation so that you could be better or closer to perfect, but so that you could experience all the good stuff that your Father has for you. You're, you're worried about a dollar keychain, and He has so much more. Jesus, I pray for every person in this room, Lord, for the battles they're fighting. Lord, I pray that we would all experience your best, not because we're better than anybody or anything like that, God, but because we're willing to, we're willing to fight. God, give us patience, give us endurance, give us toughness. 
God, help for us to receive all the good stuff that you have for us. God, as we become more and more like you, God, help for us to, to fight. Thank you that in the end we win because, because you win. In Jesus' name, amen.